the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. And that heat that you're feeling isn't just because of the extremely high heat index for today, which recommends sun protection for pretty much the entire day. It is also because we are just across the halfway point of Marvel's Inferno event, 1989. Woohoo! And, Trey, you know, I feel like I should take this opportunity to address one of our listeners directly. One of our most devoted listeners. <laughs> Elon, buddy. <laughs> we, know, <laughs> we, we know you're really excited about this Inferno crossover. Like, you know, it's a, it's a big X-Men event. It's really exciting. They're, you know, Madeline Pryor is basically showing off her boobs here. That's awesome. Here's the issue, though. You shouldn't rebrand your entire app because you're excited about it. <laughs> right. Like, right. You know, just because it's you're not about just it. about jettisoning an incredibly value, valuable brand identity. It's also the problem of how hard it is to do an internet search for a single letter. Right. And apparent every time I try to Google your site, it apparently thinks I want to buy a small rodent. So just don't. <laughs> Don't do wow. it. <laughs> right. But we are talking the X-Men Inferno event today. Or really today, it's really more the Spider-Man Inferno event for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we are joined once again by returning guest, creator of Halloween Man, comic book writer Drew Edwards. Howdy. Happy to be here. Although after that joke, I don't think it'll be a three-time returning guest <laughs> oh i can be bribed i i i you know if you if you were to say we're going to talk about about 70s marvel godzilla i could be lured i could be lured <laughs> back in for sure that is a very popular selection for our guests i'm just it, saying it is, I, it is funny how that. many guests want specifically that <laughs> <laughs> If it, if it sells, if it sells, you know, using me in any way, I do love Godzilla so much. I have Godzilla tattooed on my body, so you know, I don't know, I don't know what that says about me, other than I have a giant radioactive reptile tattooed on my body. But it does also say that I do love Godzilla a lot. So, and I really do like the Marvel incarnation of Godzilla. Like it's a specific version but uh, i digress I, I, we're here to talk about inferno <laughs> yeah yeah and well you know maybe by the end of this episode you'll have pineapple thing tattooed on you oh <laughs> i love i do love the pineapple thing 
weird weird big swings that Marvel was was taken in the late eighties. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Spider Man gets an alternate costume. The Fantastic Four get black costumes. Captain America got an alternate costume. Why not give the Thing an alternate costume? Yeah. Yeah, Hulk. The Hulk was gray, and the the thing got all slag tidy, you know, for yeah. for a bit. So you know, it was it was the eighties. It was a it was it was a you know a, a decade of excess. So you know they had to they had to make the the thing, you know, more 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 thing than thing. I guess right. More extreme, extreme thing. To use the nineties terminology. Yes. Right. So um, a thing we've been starting off with when we have guests on for these Inferno episodes. No pun intended. Sure. <laughs> what we've been starting off with with our guests is trying to get a sense of where they're coming from, what their background is as it relates to the the Inferno event and the, the books that we're talking about. And so that takes us to a segment that we like to call... Previously on X Men. So, Drew, what's what's your background with Inferno? I mean, I certainly remember it coming out. I I because of where I grew up. Oddly enough, like most of the comics that I read were actually comics that I got from my local library, and most of them were from. <laughs> from the 1960s. So I have a very weird intro into not only comic books, but like the Marvel universe and in general. And, and the, the reason why I'm, I'm saying this is because my first exposure to the Marvel universe was from the 1960s version. My favorite characters were the fantastic four. And that's who I was invested in. So like when eventually our our local Walmart started carrying more recent Marvel comics, I didn't really immediately gravitate to the X Men books. So while I remember Inferno coming out, I I I didn't really get swept up in it when it was current it really wasn't only until i i you know was older and i went was going back and sort of looking at the 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 claremont x-men stuff that i i took a longer look in at, at inferno that being said I do remember the ramifications of Inferno pretty well, particularly in regarding some of the stuff we're going to be talking about today, which is stuff that happened with the Hobgoblin in the Spider-Man books. Like the, oh, yeah. the, 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 the demonic version of the Hobgoblin, like he stuck around for a few, for a few years. So, and you know, I was a big Spider-Man fan. So I I do really, you know, like like revi- like out of the stuff from Inferno that I remember be- when it was contemporary, 
the Spider-Man stuff is the stuff that that really stuck out to me, in, in part because of what what they did with Hobgoblin, which of course is what we're gonna we're gonna get more into in a second. So, yeah, I had a relationship with it, but it wasn't it wasn't super high up on my radar. And I think when we actually talk about the Fantastic Four tie-in issue, I think that's even going to, going to make even even more sense because. You know, as with most things, Fantastic Four, even when there's a crossover, they somehow, they somehow just sort of stick into their own little corner of the Marvel universe. Speaking of, we should probably talk about what books we're talking about this episode. Right, and they are Spectacular Spider-Man number one forty-seven, Web of Spider-Man number forty-eight, Amazing Spider-Man number three thirteen. Fantastic Four, number 323, and Uncanny X-Men, number 241. So, there's a lot of Spider-Man in there, Trey. Yeah, and these three issues, as will sort of become evident when we talk about them, basically are one continuous story. Yeah. (laughs) And kind of picking up where we left off with the previous Spider-Man heavy episode. Absolutely. Yes. So... Yeah, I guess that's as good a place as any to say, maybe take a break, and when we come back, we'll kick things off with Spectacular Spider-Man, number 147, right after these messages. All right, Josh, we got to do this ad. we got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. (sighs) All right. We're underachieving overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and Adventure by the Light of the Silver Screen. Is non-judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitist, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. If you're looking for adventure this summer, escape with Marvel Comics. Fight crime with Spider-Man, meet the Fantastic Four, and watch Captain America in action. May the Force be with you as you battle the evil empire in Star Wars. Discover the secrets of the South American jungle in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And with Marvel Comics, you're never alone, because they can go with you, in the car, or to the park, even on a rainy day. Marvel Comics are your ticket to fun and adventure this summer. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first issue for today is Spectacular Spider-Man number 147. It's written by Jerry Conway. Pencils and inks by Sal Bashema. The colorist is Bob Sharon. The letterer is Rick Parker. And the editor is Jim Salacro. And we open where our last Spider-Man comic left off. The defeated Hobgoblin is flying away from the site of his fight against both Spider-Man and Harry Osborn as the quasi-heroic Green Goblin. And Hobgoblin is basically complaining the whole time that it's not fair. All he wanted was the Goblin Serum because it's rightfully his because he's the true heir to Norman Osborn. And Big insult energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just then, he encounters a group of actual demons who are in no way fooled by his demon costume and they threaten to eat him. He gets into a little bit of a fight with them, blasts them with 
the blasters in his fingertips, and eventually he called. Yeah, yeah. Eventually he calls them off, saying, musing that rather than dressing like a demon, maybe he should try to be one of them. Meanwhile, Spider-Man is swinging through the city as demonic inferno chaos is erupting on the streets below. He swings over to a gargoyle to try and get a sense of what's going on. At one point, he gets hit by a gust of demonic wind. He grabs onto the face of the gargoyle and pulls himself up. The gargoyle itself comes to life as a demon and bites him in the ribs. He falls from the gargoyle to the streets below. Lots of people run by ignoring him. I imagine a few of them probably stepped on him in the process. And Spider-Man is able to limp his way to the Daily Bugle. Inside the Bugle, Jameson is chomping on a cigar and giving orders. Spider-Man limps in and collapses right in front of Jameson. And elsewhere in Manhattan, Mary Jane and the crew of photographers and PR people and agents, everyone who was there for a photo shoot, are still fighting demons where she was working on her next job. And she continues being the most awesome person in the room, knocking (laughs) demons out of the way and causing them to smash into a million pieces. Harry Osborn is also flying away from his fight with the Hobgoblin and decides that maybe with all... Well, he's flying away from the fight. A spout of water flies up out of the bay because he's pretty close to the, the coastline there. It takes the form of a demon and attacks. He uses his own goblin blasts to knock it away and decides to hurry home to check on his family. But because Peter was so good to him in checking on him when he was in trouble, he thinks he'll stop by May Parker's house first to make sure that she's okay. Good guy, Mary Osborne. Yeah. At this point, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Elsewhere in New York, there is more chaos on the streets below. Joe Robertson gets caught up in the chaos. A guy runs at him with a chainsaw. He trips him with his cane. The chainsaw smashes. Doesn't really have a whole lot to do with it, with what's going on in the rest of the issue, but it's furthering his storyline where he is struggling with his own complicity in Tombstone's crimes from in his past. It's all subplots um, accounted for. So, trademark yes. Michael Bailey. <laughs> We go back to Hobgoblin, who has found the demonic-possessed Empire State Building, and he demands to see the demon's master because he wants to make a deal. So the demons take Hobgoblin to Nastir, who is given a matter of moments to say anything to amuse Nastir, or else he will be eaten. And Hobgoblin says that he offers to trade his soul for power, which actually does amuse Nastir greatly, because what would he want with a with an already corrupted soul like Hobgoblin's? But because he's amused, he grants Hobgoblin his wish, and Hobgoblin is blasted with a beam of demonic energy. Elsewhere, demons are still attacking the newsroom of the Daily Bugle. Spider-Man regains consciousness and sees Ben Urick being attacked, and despite his injuries, he leaps into action, he uses his web line to pull the demon off of Ben, 
punches him, punches the demon, and it explodes. And Spidey then saves Jameson from the other demons that are attacking him. So we have an honest-to-goodness Spider-Man J. Jonah Jameson team-up. It's a shame that wasn't an issue of Marvel team-up. <laughs> are you sure? Because, <laughs> like, I feel like it might have been. There probably was at some point a Spidey Jameson Marvel team-up. If not, then there should be. But Spider-Man and the rest of the newsroom fight off the demons, and just then Spider-Man passes out again from his injuries. Back, we, we switch back to the Hobgoblin, who awakens only to realize that he his vision is different than it was. The demons have done something to his eyes. The colors are wrong, the lights are wrong, and... On the final page, we get a full-page splash. Hobgoblin has been transformed into a demonic creature. His eyes! His eyes! What did you do to his eyes? <laughs> the old uh, be careful what you, you wish for moment, I guess. Oh, yeah. There's been a few of those in Inferno now. Yeah. Of course. So, I, I, just, I want to talk about the, the Sal Buscema artwork here. Sal Buscema, great artist. Has drew, drew some of my favorite Spider-Man stories, in fact. Ones that will appear later in involving some of these very same characters. His demons, though. His demons are very much in the real Ghostbusters mold oh, yeah. of demons. They, they look like they're made of Play-Doh. Which sort of fits given the way you basically tap it on the nose and it explodes. Yeah, yeah. These, these demons are are kind of wimpy like I, I i was i was thinking about this that that you know hobgoblin's reaction is like oh i want to be want to be as powerful as a demon but like he annihilates those demons very easily so that seems like a bit of a strange conclusion for him to come up with i you know I don't know why you would want to. You, I, 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 you know, I, I know from from reading a lot of you know older Marvel comics that sometimes you have to sell the story within the allotted amount of of pages. But I think that if he had had a more difficult time fighting the demons, that 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 plot point would have worked a little better for me. The thing that Hobgoblin doesn't seem to be thinking of is that what the effectiveness that the demons do have comes from strength in numbers. Yes. And, you know, you mentioned the real Ghostbusters. Like, often, after you know, going through these issues, I did find myself thinking about the climax of the original Ghostbusters, where you have all the the various ghosts and spirits taking over New York. Like the, the, the way that this is portrayed in here feels very like they drunk very deeply from the Ghostbusters. Well, which is, which is interesting because that's not even that at this point, not even that old of a movie, but there was an explicit, there was an explicit Ghostbusters reference in our last issue of X-Men, I think. Oh, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Madeline Pryor and and Havoc are 
the at Rainbow dinner Road. at a fancy restaurant, and and there's a team of paranormal investigators trying to like figure out what's going on. Huh. And there is a later issue in this same episode that actually explicitly rep- references Ghostbusters. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Spider-Man says, "Stay, stay puff." He brings up the "Stay puff marshmallow yep. man." <laughs> it's, it's so yeah. It's it's kind of interesting to see that Ghostbusters very quickly occupied a a certain space in in pop culture. I, which... I, I think the next time a movie would get that much of a foothold in popular culture and just like not let go would be Jurassic Park in 1993. Oh, I, I completely agree with that. I do really like the artwork here. I particularly like, you know, Mary Jane. Like, this is a very, like, classic John Romita Sr. Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. But I think she she looks beautiful. And also, like, this this particular era of Spider-Man, you know, going into the 90s, was you know mary you know of course mary jane is going to be the most awesome person in the room because like the spider-man comics from this era were obsessed with showcasing mary jane like mary jane was the coolest you know girlfriend and slash wife slash whatever in comics at this point and You know, I I I think uh, this doesn't quite have the you know all the like when I do think about this point in time with Spider-Man comics, I uh, you know maybe this is more when we get into the '90s, but I do also think about like them having like a lot of like sort of pinup pa- panels of of Mary Jane, like more more interested in her physique, but this doesn't quite have that. But you know, Mary Jane is awesome in in this book and. I also really like his his green, you know, I like the green goblin here even though we don't see very much of him. I like him a lot better than than Hobgoblin in in some ways. Like Hobgoblin even though he's showcased more doesn't quite wow me the same way his take on the green goblin green goblin is and maybe it's just the classicism of of Busima here like he's got that classic marvel artist look to him so all the 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 characters that are that are sort of holdovers from the silver age look really like yeah like his j jonah jameson with like the big sort of gracho marks cigar like he he looks awesome mm. you know i I guess it's kind of weird, like, you know, here we are talking about Inferno, but, like, the stuff that really stood out to me art-wise with this issue is more of, like, the the main, you know, Spider-Man supporting cast characters. Yeah. Like, but especially, I think, especially, I think, in Spectacular and, and Web of, that's sort of the focus. That, that's what a lot of what's on display is, is the... The, the ongoing spider story and the the inferno stuff is just stage dressing for that yeah yeah i think part of it too is like the green goblin is much like you said much more expressive here the hobgoblin almost seems generic in its own way and it's interesting i guess maybe that's to contrast it with the appearance he takes later in his demonic form I wondered about that. Like, if it, they they made him look more bland, so like when they do get to that big splash page where he's got the the more reptilian look to him, like that does 
have much more impact because earlier in the issue, he just kind of looks like a guy in an orange mask. Yeah, and I'll and, say, and this is something. This is something we talked about in a previous episode, and I'll be curious to see if I feel that way this time when we look at Amazing later. I I felt like the last time we had a bunch of Spider books that McFarlane's style was much better suited to Hobgoblin because he's more of a, a recent character, I guess. That the 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 tattered cloak and the the hood, the, his aesthetic lends itself to the the shadows and the the sort of distorted styles that that McFarlane likes to bring to things whereas yeah. Green Goblin if you move too far away from sort of the the Ditko Ramita approach it starts to just not look right yeah and it's interesting you talk about Mary Jane here Mary Jane does great in all the issues we're going to look at this episode but there's a point in this issue where she's just beaten wailing on no! demons with yes. a pipe, <laughs> and the, the whole time I'm thinking, eh, remember that time she was possessed by Red Sonia? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh yeah, that was a thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Comic books. Um, I, I love the marriage era, Mary Jane. She is fantastic. Yes. I I kept wondering if that pipe, uh, if there was like an off-panel thing where like Mary Jane had that pipe blessed by a priest or or something because <laughs> like it seems so effective. Like you said, these demons are really crunchy, and when I when I think about like other demonic characters in Marvel, and, and you know maybe maybe it's just because they didn't want it to seem like a hopeless situation, but like. Think about like Ghost Rider or Son of Satan or or one of those characters. They always seem pretty potent. Like they seem fairly yeah. powerful. These demons are are more like just like or, like the orcs from Lord of the Rings. Like you, you said it yourself. Like they it's the strength and numbers thing that makes them powerful. It's not it's not the fact that they're they're monsters from hell. <laughs> and I guess maybe you could split the hair that they're supposed to be goblins, not traditional demons and that there's a difference yeah. there or even maybe it's something about proximity to sources of power that it seems like they're stronger when they're close to Nastir or or when they're close to Madeline Pryor for that matter whereas when they're in the Daily Bugle off on their own you know you, you punch one in the face and it goes boom yeah you can be J. Jonah you don't have to be Spider-Man to take one of these things on you can be J. Jonah Jameson with a with a plank of wood and you'll still be Duke although Jameson does have a lot of rage so you know he, he <laughs> might he might be good to go I don't know that I would want to fight that guy like he might be an old man but like but, you know, going he's... back to going back to Godzilla one of my all-time favorite comics panels is of J. Jonah Jameson leaning out the window of the Daily Bugle offices, shaking his fist and screaming in rage at Godzilla. It's so perfectly in character, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson is one of the best supporting characters I think ever created. And, you know, I like, even in this issue, like Spider-Man and him have that sort of begrudging team up. And... You know, when he catches himself being perhaps a little bit too complimentary to Spider-Man, he immediately is like, 
oh, well, uh, you know, you know, it's th- this whole thing is probably somehow Spider-Man's fault. You know, like that. <laughs> like he, 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 he can't be too nice to Spider-Man. Like it's, 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 it's just, I love him. You know, I love, a, <laughs> I love a good curmudgeon and J. Jonah Jameson might be the best curmudgeon in, in comics. I also just really yeah. love that one of the people working in the Daily Bugle is swinging a typewriter as a weapon. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's sort of a shame that, or maybe it's all for the best, but I kind of found myself wishing that Marvel might use the, this is like Inferno as a basis for a movie because I think you know the 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 visual potential here with like lots of people defending themselves with makeshift makeshift weapons against demons, you know that's that's very it's it's very comic booky but it's also very cinematic, mm-hmm. and I it does remind me a lot of like the the Raimi Spider Man movies where. Yeah. You know, after Spider-Man's been pummeled by a particular supervillain, how the city of New York always has Spider-Man's back. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. But we should probably move on to the next Spider-Man installment, which is Web of Spider-Man, number 48. Title of this issue is Eyes of the Demon. Writer is Jerry Conway. Alex Suviak is penciler. Keith Williams is inker. Rick Parker is letters. Janice Cohen is colors. Jim Salakrup is editor. And editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. And this one picks up exactly where the last one left off. The cover here promises the Hobgoblin possessed. So in case you missed that issue of Spectacular, you know what's going on here. Plus... A demonic encounter with the kingpin. We didn't talk about uh, the cover of the other issue, but I like the cover of this one, where Hobgoblin is holding his mask in his hand, so that you know that the face is a demonic face. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, good stuff. stuff. <laughs> and the, the, the cover of the previous one too, you know, that the idea of Spider-Man and Jonah, J. Jonah Jameson fighting shoulder to shoulder is definitely going to make a kid who is familiar with Spider-Man pick up the book. Right, right. But we pick up at the aftermath of the battle at the Bugle offices, with Spider-Man being patched up by Phil Urich. Spider-Man, however, when he comes to consciousness, uh, believes that his friends on the Daily Bugle staff are actually demons and makes his escape from the newsroom. But not before webbing up J. Jonah Jameson's mouth, Hmm. because of course he did. Have you ever noticed that he's webbing up the mouth with the cigar inside? That seems not safe. Oh. Yeah. No, that doesn't seem safe at all. No. Probably a choking. Definitely a burn hazard. Yeah. But yeah, he then goes back out to New York and sees the chaos that's reigning there. Also in New York, we have Gloria Grant, a regular supporting cast member to the Spider-Man books, and her new foe, Eduardo Lobo, who has a quick and fairly brutal but successful encounter with a demon tray is that a forklift yeah that is a demonic forklift with tentacles and claws he tried to kill me with a forklift anyway 
We then see a dragon, which looks very similar to a D&D dragon. A demon that looks very similar to a D&D dragon. Tried to threaten the kingpin. The kingpin one punches the demon with a boom. And the demon turns to dust. Meanwhile, the king, sorry, the hobgoblin reflects on his new demonic form, which still doesn't look that demonic. All he's got, he's got the red eyes. So he, he looks less demonic here than he did on the final splash in the previous issue. Yeah, he, he's a supernatural demon where, you know, the, the, the show's budget is not the biggest budget in the world. So the only way they can identify <laughs> somebody's a demon is the color of their eyes. Carry on, my wayward son. And <laughs> the then there's a brief encounter by the lizard. What's he doing at Central Park? We have no idea because it doesn't match the continuity that we later see in the amazing issue. But whatever. <laughs> Spider-Man is looking for his wife, Mary Jane. He quickly concludes when he finds the empty studio that they must have escaped into the sewers. Why he would assume that, I don't know. But he does, and he's right. The photography team and their models have tried to escape into the sewers, where they attacked by a goo monster. Which, then we go back to Queens, where we find Aunt May and Chrissy. Remember Chrissy, folks? I remember uh, Chrissy. Putting away the laundry while Chrissy's thinking some very unfortunate things about Mary Jane and some very ugh things about Peter Parker. When they're doing so, though, yeah. who's to show up, though, but Harry Osborn being a good friend and checking in, in on them. Man, it makes you really sad about what happens to Harry later on with the same team. <laughs> but then we move back to the sewers where Fredman hasn't found the modeling team yet. But the Hobgoblin has found him. And the Hobgoblin decided that it's Spider-Man's fault that he was forced to go into steer and ask for demonic powers. Because that's not an issue, Went right? Yep. I, I remember that. Yeah. Yep. Spider-Man pushed him into that building. Twists his arm. So Mary Jane and the modeling team are actually able to take on the goo with a flashbulb. Which, okay, sure, that works. Meanwhile, the Hobgoblin reveals to Spider-Man his demonic form. And, okay, he's gotten a bit uglier. <laughs> that's that's good. The fight collides with the modeling team. Mary Jane accidentally sets Hobgoblin on fire. <laughs> and then Spider-Man tosses him into a gas-filled tunnel. Again, by accident. <laughs> that's not going to do wonders for his looks. Yeah, no. no. But also, the ceiling collapses in, which gives them an escape onto the streets of New York, which aren't much better at this point of Inferno, but you know what? They'll take it. And Aunt May's looking at the storm brewing over Manhattan and decides that she is going to travel to the city to save her poor weak nephew. Oh, Aunt May. Oh, Aunt May, indeed. Again, I like this issue. It's, yeah, yeah, this is fun. Yeah, like I, I, I think that you know the the thing that I I really admired about looking at this, especially since I don't think I had seen any of this stuff probably since I was, you know, at least a teenager, is how you know immediately I want to know about 
a lot of these sort of supporting characters that uh, that uh, just sort of get a little like like Eduardo Lobo. Like I immediately am drawn into like I want to know like what is this guy's deal? Like you know is is he a, is he a werewolf? Is he a superhero? Like what's 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 going on there? Like you know he he's, is a mutant werewolf. He is right. a mutant so, werewolf. All so right. he's a mutant whose powers cause him to change into a wolf when there's a full moon. Interesting. But Which he's not a like cursed... He, he's not cursed the way Werewolf by Night is, and he's not cosmically empowered the way Man Wolf is. He, he's he's gender-swap Wolfsbane. Sort gotcha. of, yeah. Well, I really enjoy, like, his little one-page one action scene. Like, I immediately wanted to know more about this guy. And I wish modern comics did more stuff like this like where they would tease you with something that they're just going to set up later and you know because I think it's I, I think you know something that started to happen a lot in like the early aughts is we started to really worry about not being new reader friendly enough and so I feel like it sort of has gone out of fashion to put little teases like that in contemporary comics but i actually think in in some ways this stuff is really new reader friendly because like you know it it, it makes you want to know more about the world that you're you're you know jumping into for this issue and i i think we don't perhaps give readers enough credit that you know because when we were kids we would be given, you know, you wouldn't necessarily get an entire story arc. You, know, you would you would be given a random issue and you would just have to kind of figure it out. And in some ways that would intrigue you more because you would you would want to, you know, you would see this one character and you'd be like, oh, that guy's cool. I want to know more about that guy. You know, and, and, you know, this this issue does it twice in a row because then it has that like great scene with the kingpin and you know he's not the main villain of the book he's barely in it but like the kingpin seems like a total badass for that one page that he's on <laughs> <laughs> and he teased about a daredevil there right like he's um, not even talking about spider-man he's talking about daredevil in that scene so yeah what you were saying drew and because, you know, you never do when some, some kid was just going to randomly pick up an issue at a cousin's house or something. And that was going to be their first ever introduction to the X-Men, to Spider-Man, or so forth. And I think so much of it is all about the trades nowadays. This is the days before comic books were allowed in libraries. Every scene those... has to matter because it has to pay off, if not in this issue, then at least in the next issue. Yep, yep. And especially with the way the Spider-Man titles are right now. They want somebody to go back next week and get the other Spider-Man titles coming out next week. So. It's also a matter of of the the length of, of creative teams' runs. Like, Dan Slott notwithstanding, most creative teams on books for Marvel and DC, you know, they're, they're lucky if they get 20 or 30 issues before it's a whole new creative team. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's it, that tendency to, they want to they wanna reboot every so often. Well, yeah, and then the marching orders—the marching orders for the new creative team—is is sort of do your thing with it. You only have to continue from the previous run what you really want to. Yeah, 
The other thing that this issue it does that is intriguing to me when I think about what came after is with Hobgoblin, there is a lot of what they would call on TV tropes, some, some early installment weirdness. Because when I think about this era of the Hobgoblin, like after this appearance, like, I mean, they are setting up him looking more and more monstrous with like his hair falling out and, you know, the big, you know, tongue and everything. But like he, he also kind of took on like that sort of ghost writer, very flowery, gothic speech patterns when he would show up after this. But in this <clears throat> issue, he still just kind of seems like a more amped up version of the Hobgoblin we've come to know. And I, I don't know if that was planned or if there was, you know, like after this, they're like, oh, we have to go. We really have to lean into this demon thing. You know, we, we, we have to, you know, sh really showcase that. So he can't just talk like some guy. He has to talk like in this this quasi-biblical you know, way of speaking. I, so a thing, you know, I, one thing that I do remember is, and it takes a few years, I think it's around like 91, 92, but the, the way they sort of square that circle is it turns out the demon that he has been possessed with is incompatible with him. Yeah. And so for a while, there's this kind of dueling personality thing. Yeah, and they eventually split them off in the two characters yeah. there was Hop the hobgoblin and, and the yeah and, you know because you never can get too many goblins in <laughs> in a spider-man book i really yeah i really have a lot of affinity for this this particular version of the hobgoblin and i think that's because one of the big first big spider-man crossovers that i collected all of was the return of the sinister six and mm -hmm. You know, this Ooh. this this version of the Goblin was heavily he was heavily featured in that. And so, like, when I think about Hobgoblin, this is probably the the version that I think of. But it's also, you know, so often in, in mainstream comics, things will happen and they there's it, it doesn't have any long term consequences, whereas you know, this was the status quo for Hobgoblin for quite some time. And I, I think that's kind of cool that even though this was basically an X-Men crossover, that this had ramifications for the Spider-Man books. Like, it, it made it seem like it had more weight, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And even, like, I mean, we, we've sort of joked about... How, how weird the the Avengers tie-ins are, but but even that, like a milestone Avengers issue, is, is a part of this crossover. It was not nothing, you know, like a totally new form formation of the team happens because of Inferno. And does it take or last? No, but they were trying something there. I I really think Marvel tends in in the late 80s tends to get overshadowed by DC and I mean I a lot of that is understandable because you know DC was putting out a lot of really groundbreaking books in the late 80s but post post crisis was very exciting cuz everything felt felt new 
Yeah, I think there's something really charming about this this stuff, though, because Marvel was still kind of doing classic Marvel in some ways, but they also were taking some chances. Like they 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 were rethinking the formulas of like classic. Like you had like you mentioned earlier, you had kind of a semi heroic take on the Green Goblin. You had the the hobgoblin becoming a literal demon you 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 had like these these sort of big swing stuff that they were doing for you know the gray hulk you know pi- we we made jokes about them but pineapple things so like while they were you know these comics still feel very much like classic marvel comics they 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 also weren't afraid to take some some at least small chances with with some of these characters that we had grown to to know and love mm-hmm. yeah and and with this issue in particular we, we get sort of payoffs for things storylines that have been building since the beginning of the inferno event we finally get the resolution of of mj's photo shoot subplot and we get the resolution sort of of the the hobgoblin at least insofar as Spider-Man defeats him at the end. Although um, I do feel like that is my one perhaps criticism of this is I do think that Hobgoblin is perhaps dispatched a little bit too easily after he spends most of this issue just wailing on Spider-Man. Like <laughs> like he's he's also, if he's a demon, why would he care about being ca- caught on fire anyway? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's also, I, you could make the argument he doesn't quite realize his demonic power yet. So that's, that, that's the thing is they, they don't, it doesn't get called out, but, but a no prize for it would definitely be he's figured out that he's super strong and that's about it. Hmm. Well, I mean, that I guess would be the, the first thing you would would notice if you if you start to look more and more like a monster i think your first thing was like well monsters are really strong so i must be really strong and yeah i guess there is kind of an internal logic to that he also hasn't fully taken on his demonic form and i do really like the fact that he at least initially puts his mask back on if nothing else after out out of habit because I think that does make sense that when he first shows up, Spider-Man is like, "Oh, Hobgoblin, this isn't going to be that big a deal." You know, I'm I'm dealing with 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 all kinds of stuff right now. I don't I don't have time to really worry about you, Hobgoblin. And you know, of course, then that's when Hobgoblin, you know, turns the tables on him because Spider-Man underestimates him and. I I dig all that stuff. I like I like the cockiness of Spider-Man here, but I also like the fact that you know there's something very Hitchcockian about the fact that we know something as readers about Hobgoblin that Spider-Man does not, and that is like a really good. That's a really good way of building. You know, that's class a classic way of building suspense and. You know, the the fight that ensues is a lot of fun because, like, as much as we love Spider-Man, it's always kind of nice to see your hero get challenged a little bit. You know, often, I think, in, in comics, you know, 
your superhero characters like they 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 annihilate their their bad guys perhaps a little bit too easily spider-man really gets his butt kicked here and i'm there for it yeah although yeah, and, and again that, that that the resolution involves mary jane rushing in and sort of inadvertently saving the day yes Although, if you want a fun fight, we should probably move on to our next issue after a quick break. Oh, yeah. We'll come back and look at The Amazing Spider-Man, number 313, right after these messages. Hey, kids, comics. It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey, kids, comics was a dream given form. A place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last, best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all-new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kid Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks, and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! Web-spinning Spider-Man! This is Web-spinning Spider-Man with Flyaway Action Pack. Assembly required. Load the web-spinning fluid and squeeze. Web-spinning Spider-Man! Small webs, big webs... Spider-Man webs are catchy webs. Webs around fingers, webs around legs. Webs, webs, web spinning Spider-Man. Web spinning Spider-Man with flyaway action pack and web spinning fluid by Migo. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our next issue for today is Amazing Spider-Man number 313. Our writer is David Michelini. The pencil pencils and inks are Todd McFarlane. The colorist is Bob Sharon, letters by Rick Parker, and the editor is Jim Salakrup. And let's start here with the cover, because it's pretty cool. And we've got mm-hmm. a, a very close-up shot of the lizard basically about to bite Spider-Man's head off. Mm-hmm. He's very toothy. I don't love everything about Todd McFarlane. Todd McFarlane's artwork. We were kind of talking about that before we started recording. But I do really love the way he does the lizard. He looks great here. Like, this is, especially for something that is got a lot of horror elements to it. Like, his version of the lizard is very creepy. Yeah. And not just the lizard, but there are some really great little nods in this cover. Like... You get little nods to Inferno in both the corner box and the UPC code space. Oh, yes, yes. With uh, the, oh, yeah. the corner like... box, we've got an upside-down Spider-Man, but with the flames creeping up around his head. Yep. And then the UPC, you've got a little doodle of Spider-Man, probably by McFarlane here, being engulfed in flames. I, I also love the caption boxes, because that's another thing that has kind of fallen out of fashion in contemporary comics but the the non-mutant superhero and on (laughs) campus lurks the lizard i i just i just love 
I, I don't know. I, you know, I, you know, maybe I'm, I'm someone that gets overly nostalgic, but like that kind of stuff is so fun to me. And I really miss that about uh, comics. Like, and I wish that contemporary comics would get that sort of ballyhoo about them back. Like there's, there's a certain sort of a throwback to, to Stan Lee's captions, especially on fantastic four comics back in the day. Oh yeah. Yeah. It feels very overly flowery, flowery, but it's it's also you know there's a little it's a little tongue in cheek, especially the non mutant superhero because right. this is the era <laughs> of of the X Men at Marvel and you know Spider Man, although not the only non mutant superhero, probably the most popular that Marvel continued to to publish at this time. The one that sells the most issues. <laughs> yes, and. You know, there's a, there's a lot to like about this. Like, the little details on Spider-Man's costume, like the rips on the gloves and, you know, the lizard pulling off Spider-Man's mask. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, this is the sort of stuff that, that McFarlane does really well. You know, like, like tatters upon tatters. And, you know, you have all the drool coming off of the lizard's teeth. And yeah. you know, like when 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 I think about McFarlane, like and, and when I think about the stuff that I actually enjoy about McFarlane, like this is definitely the stuff that I think of. Well, well, I, I think I've said this eyes before. Are really creepy. Yeah, yeah. The the sort of red, black, white, and black and red. And they they seem to gleam like jewels and very inhuman. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I, I think I've said this before, but. It's not surprising to me that McFarlane went from doing books like this to Spawn. And if you look at the early Spawn stuff, what is it but a a more, a clearer merging of Spider-Man-style superheroic poses in a totally horror setting? Yeah. This first page is also really great. Like, oh, with the, the, with shark, the shark in its mouth. yeah. Like and like, there's almost know, no face to it. It's all jaws. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> so we we start this issue off with a giant shark monster swimming through the Midtown Tunnel, and Mary Jane and Peter are in the back of a cab, and the shark just completely takes off the roof of the the taxi, and Peter in a moment of desperation, equips his web shooter, even though he's not in costume. And he, not all that subtly, snags the shark with a web line, pulls it toward him, and smacks it out of the way. And when the driver asks what happened, Peter says, just drive. Meanwhile, at Empire State University, Kirk Connors is fighting off the emergence of the lizard. He thought he was at a place where he only transformed to the lizard when he wanted to, but something is forcing the transformation and making the lizard personality stronger and and more dominant. Meanwhile, in Queens, Peter and Mary Jane arrive at Aunt May's house, but the only person there waiting for them is Christy. And Peter says he needs to go back out and find Aunt May because she went out looking for him. And... MJ agrees to stay and watch the kid and is very clearly not happy about it in the last panel of that part of the story. No. Peter 
Peter swings away as Spider-Man just as Aunt May arrives back at home because the the buses are not running because of the demonic invasion. Yeah, I'm surprised they were able to get a cab, actually. Right, right. To agree to go through the tunnel, even. Yeah, getting a cab in the middle of Manhattan during Inferno. Yep. (laughs) Um, But it never... Let Parker Luck never be used as a pejorative again. Mm. <laughs> Manhattan, where near the 59th Street Bridge, Kirk Connor's wife and son are driving through the chaos, and 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 Mrs. Connor reflects on the experimentation that led to Kurt becoming the lizard. Martha. Her name's Martha, right? Martha, yeah, Martha Connors. That's one, that. one, one of the many Marthas of comics. Yeah, if all else fails in comic books, if you don't know a woman's name, just assume it's Martha. Okay, you'll, you'll, be, you'll, you'll probably be right. <laughs> so, Martha Connors is reflecting Watch on... Name. <laughs> it would be great if the lizard shouted that in this issue. <laughs> Why did you say that name? <laughs> she reflects on the experimentation that created the lizard and how it led to their separation. But when Kurt was able to regain control over his changes, they started talking about reconciliation. And in fact, they're on their way into the city to continue those talks. And Peter is still unable to find Aunt May, but he muses that maybe she went to look for him at the school. So he also heads toward Empire State University. Martha and Billy arrive at Dr. Connor's lab, and a demonic-looking guard waves them in, saying that that Connors left word for them to be allowed in. But then, once they get inside, the demon guard says I, that he played a trick on them, that Kurt didn't have anything to do with this. And he pulls open a card catalog drawer marked OB to Occult, and a bunch of weird demon creatures emerge from the card catalog. Meanwhile, two boys from Texas who are vacationing in Manhattan are up to shenanigans, as kids are often doing. And the Spider-Man balloon from the Macy's parade comes to life and attacks them. (laughs) So they run out of the warehouse they've snuck into. Meanwhile, Martha and Billy Connors are still being attacked by demons. The lizard emerges from his lab and fights off the demons. Initially, Martha thinks that this is Kurt in control of the lizard form and that he's saving them, but it's pretty clear that he wants to kill them and or eat. From above, Spider-Man sees the lizard fighting the demons with the rest of the Connors family present. He thinks that maybe the lizard is trying to help. Um, And just then he sees the Spider-Man balloon walking through the streets as he says, the Stay Puffed Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, so Spidey tries to attack the giant Spider-Man balloon and is unsuccessful. And so he breaks off the lightning rod spire from the top of the Chrysler building. And he uses it as a giant pin to pop the balloon. Meanwhile, the lizard, having defeated the demons, reveals that he does indeed plan to kill the Connors family to remove what's left of Kirk Connor's connection to humanity. Spider-Man rushes in and knocks the lizard out of the way. 
And very quickly, Spider-Man rushes to the lab and makes the formula that he's made in the past to turn the lizard back into Kurt Connors. But unfortunately, this serum has to be swallowed, which means getting close to the lizard's mouth. Spidey jumps in, they fight a little bit, he's able to toss the liquid down the lizard's throat, and the lizard does not immediately transform. He is knocked knocked down for a minute, but the lizard comes back stronger than ever. Uh, Spider-Man remembers that the formula is, or the change rather, is electrochemical in nature, and so he uses a loose electrical wire to try and electrocute the lizard to jumpstart the serum, the serum's effects. Billy, who clearly has no sense of self-preservation, tries to stop Spider-Man by grabbing the other end of the electrical cord, which causes Spider-Man to be tail-whipped by the lizard into maybe the ceiling? The angle on that panel is a little weird, but I think it's the ceiling. It's still McFarlane. Um, the lizard, showing no gratitude, turns to kill and or devour the boy, but don't worry, that won't happen for many more years. Oh, <laughs> he, he, he got better. No, I don't think he did. No, because the jackal, he did. Oh, that's right. Ben Riley brought everyone back. Yes, but in any case, the lizard tries to uh, kill the boy, but he realizes his left hand is reaching for the electrical cable on its own. That basically, the the parts of him that were all were human originally are harder to control because Kirk Connor's personality is still exerting some influence. Um, yeah. He, Peter, and there's a great, great panel here where he says, I can always grow another arm later. <laughs> yeah. The, the implication is he can chop off that arm and grow a fully lizard arm to replace it. Spidey uses part of a Bunsen burner, I think to uh, drive the lizard back and and, and in that moment, the lizard's left arm voluntarily grabs the electrical wire and the shock immediately turns him back into Kirk Connors, who collapses on the floor and begs his family to stay away. Spidey agrees to take care of Martha and Billy and get them to safety, and then he'll resume his search for Aunt May. On the way out, Spidey runs into Mary Jane, who says that she's looking for a student named Peter Parker, because... He needs to know that his aunt has returned home safe in Queens. <laughs> and Spidey says that what happened is a long story, uh, that he appreciates the good news, because after everything that's happened, he needs a happy ending. This issue, visually, even though there is a lot that I like about it, is very jarring when you come off of the look of the the other two. And I mean, perhaps that's why Todd McFarlane went went on to be the the sort of superstar artist that he became. But you know, when when you're a reading experience like so close to one another, I feel like just like aesthetically, it's it's it it, it really threw me off. Did anybody yeah. else feel that way? Yeah, it, 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 this is very much a transitional moment for comics. I the late 80s into the early 90s is a point of transition where you've got a bunch of creators who are still doing things the way they did them in the Bronze Age, sort of coming off of the style of Romita and other Perez and people like that. But then you've also got these very modern, 
younger artists who are sort of bringing in their own styles that look drastically different. And and so I think this book is sort of where comics would be at three years from this point, whereas the other yeah. books are still sort of doing what was done three years earlier. And yeah. I don't hate everything here. Like, I, I think I with my personal preferences like again because i would my introduction to comic books is was was through older comic books i do have a tendency to prefer that style of artwork but it has to be said like the the horror elements in this are great like mcfarlane does great monsters like the shark is cool the demons are cool like that first like like big reveal of the lizard like he just looks like he's about to like pop off the page like it's very cool I will say yeah. you, you know as much as I discourage McFarlane's events some of the decisions here with the artwork are very big and cinematic something you know like in you know the tabletop RPG world we call like rule of cool don't don't think about the logic of it just think will it look cool in the in the game or in this case on the page and yeah it does like yeah. the shark in a tunnel that's very cool yeah i think the lizard has always been a personal favorite marvel villain of mine i like that he's he's sort of a reptilian take on dr jekyll and mr hyde he's very he, he's very tragic you kind of want things to go right for for doc connors but they never seem like they do for very long like that's the stuff that McFarlane does great I feel like his versions of Mary Jane and Peter oddly look dated in ways that the versions from the other issues do like Mary Jane looks really 80s here like her outfit is really 80s her, her hair is really 80s and I mean, like, look, like, you know, your mileage may vary there, but I think that if we were to show this to, like, a younger, you know, reader, I think the things that might throw them off would be some of the choices with the way the actual people look versus, mm -hmm. like, the monsters and, you know, like, sp the way Spider-Man himself looks. You know that that sort of reveals more of the era than than I think the 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 previous issues do, which are more I guess this is such an overused term, but like timeless, I guess. Yeah, I'd say it, it looks the the other two issues. The style is classical, not in like a capital C classic, like this is a canonical great work kind of thing, but classical in a this is sort of what an entire period of comics looks like and has been around for so long that it's sort of accepted as a, a status quo for what comics look like. I, I will say it's almost a disappointment that we didn't get McFarlane doing the first appearance of the demonic Hobgoblin. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Because he did a really great job with the human Hobgoblin previously. That was in the issue that he did of that. The Hobgoblin was the best part of that that issue. Yeah. Well, and like this, that is very much his wheelhouse because, like, I just, just you know flipping through this right now, I'm looking at all the various 
you know, demons that he, you know, these are throwaway characters and he, he renders them so lovingly. Like that, that, that sort of big Pepto-Bismol pink demon that yeah. the lizard tosses out the window. That's a great monster design that, you know, he could have just gotten away with doing a generic, you know, demon with like big horns and, you know, something a little more, you know, bland and he really you know it's got the big overbite it's got the sort of Nosferatu fingers it's got the the weirdly teeny tiny legs and you know he didn't sort have of a pro- to sort put... of a prototype for the violator from oh Spawn. yeah totally totally and he didn't have to put that much effort into it I really like all this stuff with the lizard fighting the demons like the you know, I when I was a kid, there was sort of part of me that always wished the lizard could end up being a superhero. And you would go through these times where Connors temporarily had control over the lizard and kind of could operate on that level. Here, they they sort of turn that expectation on its head because, like, he 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 throttles all these demons, and you know what's really going on here is the lizard is going to kill them to kill off what's left of his humanity. And that's both terrifying, but also very sad. And I, I, I think that really cuts to why I've always found this to be a, him to be a really appealing villain. Like, cause he does operate on that sort of universal monsters kind of level. It's worth noting, I actually stopped a page early. I didn't realize I didn't summarize the last page. But it does. the last page doesn't have any bearing on the plot of the rest of the issue, but it cuts to Kastner County Maximum Security Prison, where Jonathan Caesar is released into the custody of his lawyer. Several legal loopholes have been used to get Jonathan out of prison, and he is already plotting to get revenge against Mary Jane ugh, for spurring his romantic advances. Oh yeah, Mary Jane had a stalker. I remember that. Like, yep. So, although we should talk about what is the highlight of the issue, and I think we've kind of held off long enough on that, and that, of course, is the fight with the Macy's Day, Macy's Thanksgiving Day <laughs> balloon of Spider-Man. Well, I mean, you wanted a kaiju, and that, that we've got a kaiju Spider-Man here. Stay yep. puff, Spider-Man. I mean, yeah, like this is. This is great, and the fact that he uses the Chrysler needle to sort of drive a stake through its heart is is <laughs> both wonderful and hilarious at the same time. So good. So good. It's, it's honestly the highlight of the issue. It's worth the buy just for that fight. And, you know, despite my animosity towards McFarland, with that in there and the other stuff in there as well, I have to say, this is a good read for a kid. In fact, so far, most of these issues have been like a good pickup for a young reader. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because like when I think about Inferno, I guess I think of like the the Excalibur tie-ins and, and you know, more of like the X-Men stuff, which had this sort of, and, you know, and look, that maybe that's just because Claremont was involved, but there's this, this sort of weird underlaying uh, perviness to it you know you have oh, you yeah. have goblin goblin queen walking around dressed like a, a goth 
Frank Frazetta girl. And well, and, and last episode we had a whole lot of magic in her demonic form, basically yeah. looking completely nude. Yeah, and then there was the there was the the in the Excalibur tie-in. You know, Ma- Megan transforms into basically an Elvira version of herself. So, like, there's this. You know, comics are weird, and you know, <laughs> there, a lot of the t- a lot of the time there is, you know, sometimes some inappropriateness to some of the stuff this stuff though you're right like the spider-man stuff it, it's scary it never gets too scary you know it, it, it's, it, i mean it, it's it's like watching i don't know Svengoolie or whatever like it, it, it's yeah. it's kid-friendly scary yeah and you know it's gateway comics this is good stuff but also gateway Horror, like I, I, you know, like I, I could see somebody looking at all this stuff and, and, you know, going down that monster kid route as well. And you know, McFarlane, in particular, you know, that's really to me because I, I kind of have a love hate relationship with McFarlane. I was more of an Eric Larson guy when it came to the, oh, cool. yeah. to, to the image, to the image founders. But like I, I think is, he's by far the most consistent of the image guys. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And but this is very much McFarlane's wheelhouse. Like this is the stuff I like about him. You know, I I I think this is all really fun. Like these the, the this sort of like snapshot of this era of Spider-Man. Like this is all really fun stuff. Yeah, Although I agree. What I was referring to in my case, like I think my my barometer here is. Okay, you're spending a dollar for this book. Are you getting your money's worth? Because you know nowadays with comics, you you, you pay what five dollars for a book, and you're getting what in the old days would have been like two pages or six pages worth of material. And yeah, right here, you're, you're definitely getting bang for the buck. You're getting that the Macy's Day balloon fight. You're getting the fight with the lizard. You're getting subplots accounted for. You're getting that fight with the with the shark in the tunnel. Again, that scene makes no sense <laughs> at all. <laughs> but it's okay. Yeah, because it's a cool visual. It's it's again rule of cool. Also, right. Spider Man fighting in in plain clothes, which is kind of interesting. You don't get that very often, at least back then. No. So yeah, I think maybe we should move on to from this issue, which we admit, even with our problems with the artist is a good buy for the buck. You know, it'll keep that kid entertained oh, yeah. during, the, during the car trip. And, and if, there's that... a, if there's a villain that's appropriate to an art style, like we've said, Lizard is, is very good for McFarlane's art style. Yeah. Moving from that to an issue that maybe wouldn't keep a kid entertained for a car trip? I don't know, Drew. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about Fantastic Four, number three... 23, please. So, yes, this is Fantastic Four 323. It is written by Steve Engelhart with art, with pencils by Keith Pollard, inks by, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Romeo Tanghal, letters by, really, Ghastly J. Workman, and colors by George Ruzzo, 
with editing by Ralph Macchio and, of course, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco. So kind of starting out with the cover again, I do really like this cover. If anything would have grabbed my attention about this issue, if I had seen it on a newsstand as a kid, it would have been this. It's very Kirby-esque. It, it's got more of those great sort of Stan Lee-style captions that we were talking about from the, the lizard issue. I love but, a caption inside a giant arrow. I yeah, just love yeah like featuring <laughs> the enig- enigmatic mantis and he's back, Kang the Conqueror, Orphan Storm. And of course, it's got the little thing over here that says Inferno Continues. But and, and even the way this opens up, it does try to sell it as like, I guess, a Halloween issue. And we have a fairly weird lineup of the Fantastic Four, which if those of you who are not super invested in the Fantastic Four's history like I am, there was a point in the late 80s where the Thing was the leader and the Thing got a second dose of cosmic rays and he became what we were jokingly calling uh, pineapple thing or, you know, what I called him as a kid, uh, salagtite thing. And you also had this, th- th- that incarnation of Miss Miss Marvel, which was Sharon Ventura, who was a female version of the thing and the human torch and and crystal is showcased on a you know a little bit on the cover but crystal is actually very quickly jettisoned out of this version of the fantastic four who basically ended up being more like the fantastic three this is two issues of the ff we've done where there are really only three members yes i mean i guess you could kind of think of mantis as like a fill-in member just so you can round it out the four, but uh, you know, that's, that's kind of cheating also. So yeah, what you have in this issue, the fantastic three are wandering amongst the inferno and they're talking about all the, the crazy stuff that is going on in New York. The human torch tries to get out of superheroing by saying that he needs to go check on his wife Yes, the Human Torch was married to Alicia Masters at this point, who we also Quote, later... Unquote, Alicia Masters. Uh, yeah, who is actually a scroll, <laughs> but that's a that's another story for another time. And apparently he has been having trouble shutting off his powers. They hear fighting going on. They see Mantis being attacked by <laughs> parking meters. I, I love it. And they go to aid her. There's a bunch of of fighting, also sports references. Mantis has apparently had some of her her powers as the Celestial Madonna taken away from her, as well as her kid. There's a panel where the Human Torch tries the flame off, and he can't. You have some side business where you have the Rogue Watcher and the Dragon Man watching... The, the FF, they then get spirited spirited away by some uh, pink pink smoke. And then what we get into what actually is going on in the rest of the issue, which is the Fantastic Four 
fighting Kang because Kang wants Mantis and the Fantastic Four are not having any of that. And, you know, you have page after page of, of Kirby Crackles, page after page of Kang kidnapping Mantis only for her to be rescued. This is a very repetitive issue. Like, and I think that's the biggest problem with it. It finally, you know, the issue ends with, you know, the thing destroying Kang's spaceship and Mantis is spirited away to someplace where we don't know, but we're, we're you know, like, we, we, we're, we're not going to see the end of this. So <laughs> if my, my description of this issue seems kind of rambling and confused, that's because this is a rambling and confused comic book. I, I love the Fantastic Four, even this era of the Fantastic Four, but this is a terrible tie-in for Inferno. Like, it, it... First of all, it has so little to do with Inferno that the artist on this issue can barely be bothered to draw the, the demonic version of New York that we have been seeing for all the other tie-ins. And immediately you get, get you know, it's, it's, you know, as often with the Fantastic Four, they're sort of occupying their own little adventures in in the Marvel Universe, and there this whole issue is sort of preoccupied with Kang trying to kidnap Mantis and him continuing continuing to fail to do so. I mean, am, am I the only one that that felt like this? It, it, it's, it's especially it's especially weird because it's not even the same Kang that we saw in another Inferno tie-in. Yeah, they talk <laughs> about that. They talk about the fact that there's another version of me of me out there doing. A, stupid shit because he's not me right he's trying to influence the Avengers while this Kang is kidnapping Mantis because I kind of like how different versions of Kang trash talk one another oh yeah yeah the other what's also funny is and this doesn't get revealed in this issue but I went down a rabbit hole with what was up with Mantis during this era and and part, part of the issue is that there's not one mantis, but fragments of mantis scattered all over the universe. Oh, wow. Oh, no. So she got caught in an explosion alongside Shalabal, Silver Surfer's love interest. Silver Surfer saved Shalabal, but mantis was caught in the explosion. And so fragments of her spread across the universe, all of them having amnesia. One of them went to the West Coast Avengers and was involved in Evolutionary War. Another fragment was this one in New York that ran into the Fantastic Four. So that's part of the weirdness with Mantis in this book is that it's not even fully her. I loved seeing Mantis in this, though, because it, it, it reminded me because I had, I had just recently seen Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And it reminded me how different the comic book version of Mantis is from her her movie incarnation and i i think with the uh, the sort of uh, how ubiquitous the 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 mcu versions of characters become sometimes even as comic book readers we kind of need a refresher of you know what these characters are actually like in their native universe and so seeing 
this mantis with the sort of weird stripper slash martial artist costume and you know like all that like that was super fun to me i don't i i i mean y'all it seems like you had encountered you know you 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 went down the mantis rabbit hole but did you feel this way when she first popped up as well I don't have a lot of experience with the character outside of, you know, the odd Avengers issue or whatever that, that she'd show up in. Cosmic Marvel is not something that I have read a lot of. But but she's a character that is always sort of fun to see show up in this supporting capacity. Yeah. Uh, and absolutely, because I don't haven't read a lot of her stuff, when I think of Mantis, yeah, the first thing that pops into my head is probably the, the MCU version. Yeah, I think the you were talking about whether or not this would hold a kid's attention. I think there is a sort of misleadingness about like, like the the cover of this story looks really exciting, and then mm-hmm. the the the, sto- the story that actually happens is sort of meandering. Yeah, I will point out that the original version of Mantis, as she appeared in Engelhart's Avenger, Avengers run really was the most 70s version of edgy that you'd ever seen like to 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 be very clear like prior to becoming a superhero prior to becoming an inventor she was working as a vietnamese prostitute oh wow yeah because that's where she meets swordsman yeah so it's very much ingo hart being like look what i what themes and ideas i'm putting into comics and in a modern context, it's kind of like mm, a little cringy. Yeah, and and it's also sort of telling that that Inglehart comes up with the character for Avengers, and it's Inglehart putting her into this FF story. Yeah. Well, I also kind of wonder if this was soft testing for her to be a replacement for Crystal, um, mm-hmm. because she does sort of function as the fourth member of the Fantastic Four here. Yeah. I really like this weird lineup, and I also have a lot of affection for this version of the thing. I know a lot of people don't like it because it's not the classic Kirby design, and it is really over the top, but I don't know. I think he's, as a monster, he's kind of cool. I like the fact that, you know, like, this has nothing to do with this issue, but I like the fact that he's also stronger than the Hulk, because, like, usually the thing is the underdog in those matchups. So, you know, anytime I I get to sort of dip into this era of the Fantastic Four, I, I do get a certain kick out of seeing the sort of supercharged version of the thing. In a way, it's also kind of a throwback to the very earliest Kirby drawings of the thing, where where he was a little more lizard-like, like it, it was yeah. more scales than rocks. Yeah, the uh, sort and, of and, dinosaur thing. Yeah, and here he very much looks like he has dinosaur skin. Yeah. The only criticism I think I have of the rendering of him is that and this is a problem with like anybody trying to draw this version of the thing is that sometimes he has a little spiky tail sticking out of his Jack Kirby monster shorts. And then a lot of the times it just disappears probably because it was a pain in the ass to draw. Right. So like, you know, your mileage may vary with that. Like if continuity (laughs) errors really 
bug you, that's going to probably stick with you. You do get the classic thing design represented here by Sharon Ventura. So it's not like that's absent. You know, it's still in the comic, albeit, you know, a, a, you know, feminized version of it. Yeah. A, a natural evolution of this actually would be Rex from the first family from Astro City. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 actually had never crossed my mind before. But I, I kind of wonder if you were to ask, you know, Alex Ross or whoever was responsible for designing Rex, if this was an influence at all. I don't think Alex Ross would say that. I think Alex Ross would argue that it's actually just the thing with the stones replacing scales. But oh, well. <laughs> But but there is definitely a comparison to be made just as a casual observer. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing that this issue completely fails at is that it, it, it is, again, not an Inferno tie-in really <laughs> at all. First five pages are Inferno. Yeah. The rest is not. Yeah. yeah. Like, why do you think that they let Englehart get away with that. Like, like, you know, the Spider-Man office only seemed more than happy to, to play in that sandbox. Whereas here we get a pretty typical, like superhero, supervillain, you know, matchup, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not, it's, it's, you know, it's not anything out of the ordinary, like, cause you know, it's not like the Fantastic Four don't have villains that could have worked really well in Inferno. Like, you could have used Diablo, you could have used yeah. Sa- Salem 7. You know, there are villains that could have been worked very well into the Inferno pl- uh, plot line, but they just was like, nope, Kang. Yeah. And it, it really is misleading because you get Orphan Storm, you think, oh, it's going to be all those babies falling from the sky? Right, <laughs> right. But no, oh, it's so here's a thing. Here's the thing that that's interesting. It's not on our list because it's not listed as an Inferno tie-in. But evidently, Nastir shows up in the next issue of Fantastic Four. Really? Yeah. So, so that might have been a better Inferno tie-in than than this because this doesn't well, advance. It, it, it continues this story. It's a it's huh. a Kang story, and they're looking for Mantis, but. Necrodamus and Nastir show up. <laughs> Go figure. You know, I'm sure I probably had read these tie-ins at some point, but like going back to the the you know this not being something that would stick with a kid. Like even having read this era of Fantastic Four before, I had almost no memory of of seeing this when I revisited this for the the podcast. Like I. I I've you know read this entire era of Fantastic Four, but this just didn't stick with me. And I think you know I'm a 44 year old man with like decades of comics reading experience behind me. I can't even begin to imagine if this would have you know in the 80s if this would have been something that would have engaged a kid at all. A, a, a thing that I keep thinking about as we're talking here is. Unlike Spider-Man, like Spider-Man already has to maintain internal continuity across three titles. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very easy for those creative teams to adapt to an event because they're already having to, like, communicate with other creative teams and keep things on track anyway. Here, Fantastic Four 
is a single book. It's written by Steve Englehart, who at this point in his career is enough of an institution that like he's got his own stuff going on. Like like this yeah. this issue we read is much more interested in tying into Steve Englehart's Silver Surfer book and Steve, like all these other things that Steve Englehart has done rather than tying into Inferno. And I think that's maybe part of it is is he's connecting to other stuff that he's done more so than he is the event. Yeah, and I think you're right. I just think that that maybe editorial just didn't think they could tell him, no, you got to do a story with demons and, you know, the occult and, and stuff like that. Like, and, you know, look, maybe if, if I had come off of like a binge read of the Engelhart Fantastic Four, I would have reacted to this differently, but like coming off of the Spider-Man issues of Inferno, this was just, this was really jarring. And as much as I love the Fantastic Four, which is a lot, like I, I, I have to stress <laughs> that, like the Fantastic Four is my jam. This, this one didn't do it for me. One other thing I'll say is part of why that cover is so awesome is it's a Ron Friends cover. Yeah. And that it's better out. than the actual issue. Like, I if if I saw a T-shirt of this cover, I would buy it. Like, this, <laughs> yes. this, it's so cool, and and it's it's the the best thing about this comic book. And sadly, it is the cover. I just cannot stand Sharon Ventura. Just <laughs> I, I really can't. Sharon Ventura bugged me when I was a kid because I wanted. I did not. Even before she was revealed to be a scroll spy, I did not understand why Johnny Storm was married to Alicia Masters. Like that that felt yeah. icky nope. to me. No, nope. because nope. The, hold on. It's the worst part of the burn run. Coming off of like the Silver Age stuff, which was my exposure to the Fantastic Four, like in the very first appearance of Alicia Masters the Alicia is said to have quite a bit of resemblance to Sue storm. So yep. like going to, you know, without like the context of like the decades in between, it just felt icky. It was like, wait, Johnny's but, married to somebody that looks like his sister. <laughs> right. The, yes. Yes. That, that always struck me too. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it was, and I can see why they retconned it out because you know first of all like the alicia ben relationship is iconic but also it 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 aged up johnny in a way the where he couldn't really fit into his traditional role as the the hothead no pun intended of the fantastic four where he he was the one that did immature things you know when someone gets married he's effectively team leader for for chunks of this yeah and that's not as much fun as the classic Johnny Storm. But again, this is also an atypical lineup. So, you know, maybe if you're, you remove the sort of parental, you know, parental style influence of Sue and Reed, maybe Johnny does act more maturely. You know? I, I, think, I think marriage and a kid were a more natural progression for Peter Parker yeah. than they were so much for Johnny Storm. My thoughts on Johnny, and I might get get lambasted on the internet for that. This is that Johnny is 
such a Lothario at heart. He's going to sal- sabotage any sa- stable relationship he ends up in. And I don't really, I think if you move him away from that for too long, it kind of breaks the character a little bit. You know, Marvel characters aren't really the same as, you know, like a, a fictional character in like an indie book or a film. You know, they don't, they, they have very, they're very slow to character development. And yeah, like Peter being married didn't bother me at all. Like I was, as a kid, I, I it completely was fine with going from, you know, teenage Peter Parker to, you know, 20 something Peter Parker, who's, who's, you know, married to, to Mary Jane. Like that was fine to me, but I, you know, this version of Johnny just never clicked with me. Yeah. I, I, I'm right there with that. Well, I think that's probably a good place to take another break. We're going to come back with our look at uncanny X-Men number 241 right after these messages. Hello and welcome to the Shameless Picture Show. I am your host, Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is fellow writer and filmmaker, Nick Richards. So, Nick, what is a Shameless? Have you ever been at a party or hanging with friends and somebody brings up a beloved film that you have not seen? Oh, yeah, all the time. It's to- it's, I'm always like, oh, totally, I've, I've totally seen that. I love that part where the thing happens and all the stuff that you're talking about is fantastic. <laughs> exactly. So all those films, the classics that you should have seen but never got around to, you write them down, that's your shame list. So what we do is on each episode, we pick a movie from one of our shame lists. We both watch it, well, at least we try to, and we discuss <laughs> the film as a fresh viewer. Well, one of us is usually a fresh viewer. The other may have already seen it, I guess, making them a stale viewer. Yes, but that's not always the case. Wordplay! There is always a little bit of shameless crossover. Uh, we should turn our shameless into like a Venn diagram and see the crossover. I completely agree. I think that would work out well. So we typically release one of these deep dive episodes a month, and we try to release a second monthly episode that is sometimes another deep dive, and sometimes it's more of a topical episode. So find us on most major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Libsyn. And as we say on the shame list, if you don't like that, I've got two words for you. Watch, Watch movies. movies. Tired of the same old fun and games? Welcome Spider-Man X-Men to the video game ride of your lives. Wolverine, Spider-Man, Gambit, Cyclops. Now on Genesis, the ultimate video game team. Are we having fun yet? Welcome back to the Believers to our next and last issue for this episode. That is Uncanny X-Men number 241. Inferno Part the Second, Ban the Flames. Writer on this one is Chris Claremont. Penciler is Mark Silvestri. Inker is Dan Green. Colorist is Glynis Oliver. Letter is Tom Wojciechowski. Editor is... Bob Harris and Mark Grunewald. So, first off, that that cover is iconic. I think yep. we can, can yep. agree there. I'm pretty you sure this was used for one of the collected editions. I'm almost certain. Like they love the big like eight spread artworks for these for the trades. So, we resume where we left off with Madeline Pryor being confronted by Mister Sinister, who says, "You." 
Madeline Pryor, my pride, my first and foremost joy may call me father. And Sinister, after you know, bitch-slapping some demons and chaining Madeline up, kind of explains to her that, hey, bitch, you a clone. And <laughs> meanwhile, the X-Men fight the Marauders. But interesting enough, as they fight the Marauders, the X-Men themselves become a bit more vicious by each panel and a bit more evil looking a bit more demonic looking each panel switch back to Madame Pryor and of course she's arguing no I can't possibly be a clone I have memories like my friend who died and so she's like really are you sure because I'm pretty sure that's Jean Grey's memory and then Madame Pryor's like no she could kill Padme sorry no because she found out she's a clone there's a great bit here where uh, a guy gets turned into a stamp, which is a lot of fun. But Sinister's like, yeah, girl, you're a clone. I cloned you myself from Jean Grey because Xavier beat me to actually getting the actual Jean Grey. Then, you know, not much happened because you were just basically a squib to quote the turf rider who should not be named. And didn't have any powers until Phoenix happened. And all of a sudden, boom, you're awake. And I realized, hey, maybe I could actually use you. And I put you in my little breeding experiment with Scott Summers. Because, you know, if you put a redhead in front of him, it's pretty <laughs> good chance he will try to sex her. So, Madeline breaks free of her chains, saying, I won't be ruled by you. I won't be condemned by you. Because, you know, Sinister is about to, you know, it's like, I got the baby. I don't need you anymore. And so, th then a demon's deliver. Madeline the baby and Madeline's like you know what I can turn all your plans to ash all I gotta do is kill this baby to be continued and I mean let's be honest this issue is mostly exposition it is and I, I, I mean can we agree that Madeline Pryor is Mr. Sinister's Jean Grey fan fiction yes that's great that that works actually pretty well yeah <laughs> it, it it's his Jean Grey Mary Sue Right. <laughs> oh. God, this is good. I mean, Claremont's so good. Sylvester's so good. We're running yeah. into the issue we have a Tomb of Dracula, Trey. We just yeah. look at these extra <laughs> issues and we're like, damn, they're good. Yeah, this is the, the point when that creative team was just firing on all cylinders. Yeah. It continues to be the horniest incarnation of X-Men. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Especially because of Alan Pryor. Right. Well, like you know, to to my my point that early when we were talking about how the 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 Spider-Man issues were relatively kid friendly, like you go to this issue and like the whole thing looks like it could be a cover of a heavy metal album. Like Mr. Mm -hmm. Sinister looks really metal. Madeline Pryor looks really metal. She's hanging out with demons, you know. And then you get these sort of like monster incarnations of the X-Men later on in the issue and they look really metal so this is yeah, you know a couple of flaming motorcycles away from a meatloaf cover like yes yeah exactly <laughs> and it's I think this is one of the reasons why X-Men was so popular at this time is because you know whether whether you know you you can get into the the ethics of it all, but the fact that there is this sort of 
under layer of of as you put it horniness to it like it felt a little transgressive compared to maybe some other things like you were reading something that was slightly slightly inappropriate and yet because of that you didn't feel like as the kid that it was talking down to you in maybe the ways other things would be I mean, maybe I'm the only one that feels this way. <laughs> no, I, I think, and I think that that's exactly the tone and style that DC was chasing in books like New Teen Titans. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, there, the, the, I, I, Teen Titans of the that time period always felt a bit more like, not that it was bad because that's classic stuff, but it did feel like they were, they were, that was their reaction to the sudden eruption of, of X-Men. And I love this team of X-Men, by the way, I never was particularly interested in the, the original lineup, you know, X-Men didn't really, when, you know, I was never that big of an X-Men guy anyway, but like this, the sort of weird, you know, like you got Longshot, you got Havoc, you know, Rogue when she had her superhuman strength, you know, Storm's the leader, you know, like all of this is really like they're, they're a quirky bunch of characters. And I think that's also what is cool about them is they, they don't look like they don't look like the Avengers at all. Like there's something no. very... There's something very like rock and roll about the like Storm and and Rogue both have like their sort of big '80s heavy metal hair. Longshot has like a has his his Mel Gibson mullet, you know. <laughs> like this is this is a very MTV friendly superhero team. Very 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 nicely put there. Yes, I agree absolutely. It's which it's funny. I like this team a lot, but but I'm sort of on the other side of things. I like the original five, but I specifically like their X Factor incarnations from this era. Mm. I can I can get behind that. Like like Blue Furry Beast, Angels Just Become Archangel. Like there's something about that lineup that, that appeals to me. Well, I think that's the thing about the X-Men and I guess the Avengers as well, as you like you have these lineups which are constantly changing. So like you can sort of pick and choose your favorite version of the team. And I really like this version. I like this version of Wolverine a lot. Like I, yes. you know, the, 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 the Wolverine that that he sort of became in the '90s, where he he became this thing where he was unbeatable, is not interesting to me. But the the scrappy little guy that gets in a fight with a demonic mailbox, I like this guy <laughs> a lot. Yeah, and Silvestri is another artist who is very much having fun with the demonic appearances of things. Yes. Yeah, like you get the the exaggerated versions of not only Wolverine with like the big kind of wild boar fangs, but like Storm whose hair just gets bigger and pointier and bigger and pointier as she gets more aggressive. 
mm-hmm. and that's cool because you get to see them in like their classic you know looks at the beginning and and you know it's not like they they this is really is an example of like show not tell because they never go oh we're we're turning into a demon versions of ourselves it's like you sort of have to go hey what's up with wolverine in this panel why does he have fangs now and i didn't even pick up on it until now but in in those close ups of demonic wolverine his mask the the sort of pointy parts have turned into bat wings yeah yeah and like you look at Psylocke later her i love better ways to put this her boobs got bigger. I just well, you know, evil, evil, evil women are apparently always stacked. So you know, but they, they almost look cartoonish. Where previously it was more of a hers one of the more demure costumes. Yes, would say. But it's a it's a really subtle transformation there, and it's really well done. And Sylvester did something well, similar last issue with like Madeline Pryor's dress. Yeah, where it was changing constantly as she was using her powers of manipulation. What's What's interesting to me about this ver- the, what you're talking about that's going on with Psylocke? Interesting is probably not the right word, but looking at it as like a design point, her face like disappears into that hood where her cleavage suddenly becomes yeah. way more prominent and. I guess that's like their way of like she's a bad girl now. Like she you looks know, like, like gender swapped sleepwalker. Yes, <laughs> with Rogue, like they give her all the sort of you know tattery accents on her costume, and her hair kind of turns into wolf ears, which mm-hmm. is is cool. Like you know, all of this stuff is really fun. I. Yeah. And when I think about Inferno, like you were asking about me, like the the sort of like think about what what, what my memories of Inferno were, this is what I would like if I, you know, like my half remembered adult reminiscence of what this crossover is, is I would I would have told you, you know, yeah, you know, superheroes were getting demon makeovers and, you know, there was a lot of crazy monster designs and, you know, Matt Madeline prior being changed to things. So like th- this, this issue very much crystallizes what I remembered about Inferno before actually re rereading any of it. And, you know, it was, it was, it, it of course came from the X-Men issue because like the, the, the Spider-Man stuff, yeah, it has like demons and monsters, but it doesn't have any. It doesn't have that sort of underlying layer of kink to it, and it, 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 it you know, and the sort of like heavy metalness of it all. Yeah, and it's interesting that Colossus, and I didn't mention this in the summary. I should have. Colossus notices this happening to the other X-Men. He notices they're becoming more violent. He notices that for some reason he is unaffected by this and he theorizes correctly it seems that he's protected by his by his organic metal armor as he had been before in the boat yeah Yeah. and he's like I've got to go do this next part alone which we assume means he's going to go find his sister in New Mutants right right I like I like this version of Colossus a lot like he's got the Kirby the Jack Kirby monster shorts on 
and <laughs> you know he's got his his bracelets and everything like colossus to me like his design has always been better than any of his costumes that he's had you know because like the steel coil look of him is what is cool about colossus and i think just finally like kind of putting him in like almost the similar outfit as the thing and just like showcasing this the the steel coils is the way to go with him because like the, the yeah. sort of classic colossus uniform with like the big shoulder pads and red and yellow yeah yeah like it doesn't showcase his look as much as this does and yeah i guess there's the sort of dopiness that he's like basically running around in a speedo but i don't care like he looks cool here (laughs) right well and the thing is the the red and yellow with the the big shoulders looks equally weird when he's in human form yeah yeah it never looks good this this looks great you know the the artwork here Silvestri, of course, is another guy that would go on to be an image guy. And, you know, this this is really some some rock star stuff like like, again, even the sort of throwaway elements of like like the demon police car like that thing is so cool looking like. (laughs) Yeah, it's just lots of background details and making sure that everything on every panel sort of fits the vibe of the book and, and, and brings something to the the story that's being told. It really pops and it alternates between you have, you know, stuff that's like as, as cartoony as like the mailbox that's eating a guy. <laughs> and then you, then you have, you know, like the cheesecake art of Madeline Pryor. And then you also have like all these monsters and they all, like honestly, out of all of the stuff that we've looked at today, this is probably my favorite artwork of the bunch. Like it, 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 it really fires on all cylinders, and just like I like everything about this and the way that it's like the built, like the just the designs of the buildings, like the demo, the, the demonic buildings are. are you know, like if I was a kid and I, you know, you talked about like taking road trips with my, my family. If I was a kid, I probably would have like read this until it fell apart, you know, in the back of my parents' car. And it, it really, to sort of go back to what we were saying about the Spider-Man books, it, it, it's hitting a stylistic sweet spot, right? Like it feels in some ways very modern in in terms of framing and designs and, and content, but there's enough of that classical approach to sequential art that it still feels connected to that earlier tradition. Yeah. Like you're a hundred percent right there. It's, it's, it's both classic Marvel and the incoming image era, like all at once. It's not as out of place as the McFarlane did right after those other two Spider-Man issues. Yeah. You know what that cop car reminds me of? It's like if a Rancor from Star Wars had <laughs> sex with the robot from the beginning of Robocop. <laughs> oh my yes. god, you're 100% right. <laughs> I, I, am, I, I think the thing, that, you know, as, as, as somebody that has a decent amount of tattoos, like, 
you know, I look at that, that, the, that is a monster design. And I'm like, I kind of want to get a tattoo of that. That thing's cool. <laughs> like, you know, not that I'm going to, because it's expensive, but, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I live on, I live on a writer's salary. So like, you know, it is what it is, but this is, this is, this you know was definitely my favorite of all of the tie-ins. Like I really liked this. You know, it's something just occurred to me, and it's referring to an earlier issue. You know how much Englehart didn't want to be part of the Inferno crossover? How much? He keeps on having characters in the book refer to it as Inferno. Demonstrating an extra dimensional awareness. <laughs> yeah. You, you, oh, you want me to include some Inferno in my book? Okay, here's two pages of Inferno, and then my characters name I'm referring to Inferno. <laughs> I, you know, like, as a Fantastic Four fan, I kind of am very upset that you didn't get an issue of Fantastic Four that was more like this. And and perhaps you you couldn't really get away with that with the characters at the time, but, like, I would have loved to have seen like the, the, the thing fighting demons and, you know, like maybe, you know, like, like look, a, de- a demonic version of Johnny Storm could have looked really cool. Give her time and Sue Storm will come up with her own version of the Madeline Pryor outfit. So, well, that's true. You do have, you do have malice. So, you know, that, that is, you know, I, I, a couple of years after this, they did. Oh, what was that X Men Fantastic Four crossover with? It had Ahab, which was like a mutant hunter from the future. I remember um, Ahab. Yeah. What was that storyline called? Your song. I think you're right. I think it's Executioner's song, but I could be right. You know, somebody on the internet, if you if you know which one I'm talking about. But it's funny, like, that one integrated the Fantastic Four just fine. Like, yeah. they were like, we're doing an intercompany crossover. You know, it's going to be, you know, X-Men and Fantastic Four. And it, it gelled really nicely. Like, this, for whatever reason, they couldn't get it to, to happen with Inferno. Going back to the cover of this, what I also thought was cool was like all the other tie-in books just got a, a small Inferno logo, whereas this, you have a big honking giant Inferno logo that's like actually kind of interrupting the X-Men logo. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it's funny, but sort of related to that, Uncanny X-Men is the only title that is numbering the Inferno event, and they only count issues of Uncanny X-Men. So do you think if I were to go out and get like a, like an essential Inferno or something, do you think, (laughs) do you think it would not include Spider-Man stuff? It's a separate trade paperback. So there's, there's a collection called X-Men Inferno. And then there's, I think two books of Inferno crossovers or tie-ins or whatever. Yeah. Gotcha. So you get the New Mutant stuff, you get the Uncanny X-Men stuff, and you get the X-Factor stuff. X-Factor. And probably and Exterminators. Ex- Exterminators too, probably, yeah. But anything Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Avengers, Damage Control, Power Pack, that's all going to be in the, the tie-ins collection. In case you didn't want all that extra noise and just wanted 100% of Madeline Pryor and her, her stripperific outfit, 
like that exactly. you don't have to get the tie-in books <laughs> right <laughs> if you don't want the the things wandering the streets of new york i think other <laughs> right through i think you're right that we needed other characters getting stripper strip outfits like captain america the captain <laughs> give the captain a stripper outfit and like you know <laughs> give him give him the 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 red the black red and white speedo and then give that costume to John yeah. Walker later. So, so here's the thing. I like, think if we're, that, if we're, I think it should be a Marvel editor. If it becomes editor. required that every tie-in issue have someone get that kind of outfit, that really changes the tone of that Avengers issue starring Jarvis. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, hey man, Jarvis Jarvis has a dad bod and some people are into that, all right? Yep. Like, I, 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 I think we should, we should support stripperific. Yeah, just like the, the, the coat with tails, but underneath bear and a Speedo. Yep, and like yep. That. Yes. Maybe some chains. Obviously. <laughs> I, 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 it's time, it's time for Inferno 2.1 invasion of the goth strippers this is why you had me on the show today yep there's actually already an inferno sequel drew although drew if you want to go ahead and draw those you know <laughs> well i am not a i'm not an artist i'm just a writer oh, right writer writer yes no that makes it better honestly yeah you don't want to see me you don't want to see me attempt to draw that <laughs> I never said another good. another friend of the show, Chad Bowers. When he does conventions, he will sometimes offer to do bad writer sketches. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to be in Baltimore next month. I, maybe I should maybe I should try that. See <laughs> see see what it see what it nets to me. <laughs> All right, kid. You want Spider Man? Great. Here's his Inferno costume. Security. <laughs> Well, I mean, they could have—they could at least had—they could have at least had Mary Jane, you know, in a in a in a you know demon demon stripper outfit. Although I guess she would have probably looked just like Madeline Pryor. So yeah. you know, in the trifecta of Marvel redheads, all redheads That's are true. clones, man. It's, 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 it's a scientific yeah. fact. I'll tell that anyway. to my wife. But I think that kind of covers our read through on on this set of Inferno books. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm this is a good bunch. Yeah, I mean, this we, was we, fun. I, I we we could probably sit here for another hour and talk about horrifying mental imagery of various novel <laughs> characters and speedos. Right. And, but we, you know, that might be a bonus episode to this whole thing. Yeah, Remember I think you're that right. That time that Drew came on the show and things got weird. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Drew, tell our readers, oh, sorry, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah. Okay, so first off, like I mentioned before, next month I am going to be at Baltimore Comic Con. I am going to be posting my schedule of panels and signings and whatnot very, very soon. As far as my social media is go on Twitter, Oh, I'm sorry. X. I am. We call it Twitter. And calm, <laughs> all one. Yeah, it's still it's still Twitter than me. 
it's it's Halloween Man Com, all one word, all lowercase. On Instagram, it is I am Drew underscore Halloween. And on Facebook, you just look me up as Drew Edwards. I'm the only Drew Edwards in Austin, Texas. Please also check out Halloween Man Comics on Global Comics. That's comics with an X, where you can enjoy a lot of free digital comics. And that simply just go to globalcomics.com and search Halloween Man. Thanks, y'all. Ringo Award nominated Halloween Man. I just right. out there. Yes, Ringo Award nominated Halloween Man. But I swear, as classy as that makes me sound, I swear I am just a dirtbag. I, pr- I promise you. You've heard me how much I've talked about, about Speedos this episode. You know this is true. Well, and we, we course, are glad to have you here. Very glad, glad to have you. I'd be back. This was fun. Uh, and, you know, who knows when you might want to come back next time. Maybe, maybe we'll have you come on for, you know, Marvel's Godzilla in a Speedo. I... I you know, I, I'll I'll get a Godzilla themed speedo. How about that? <laughs> it's probably on Etsy. <laughs> yeah, but lovely listeners, you can find us on social media. The a website formerly known as Twitter. We are at Tomb of Ideas. Now on Blue Sky, we are at Tomb of Ideas. Blue Sky yeah, yeah, it's, it's a federated thing, us. so technically you have to get yeah, the whole thing. You'll find us. You'll find us. We now have an official account, Blue Sky. We've been threatening for a while. We now finally have one. You can find us on Facebook.com. Dot, Facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. We're on Instagram, at Tomb of Ideas. Guys, we're on threads, believe it or not, at Tomb of Ideas. Go figure. So if you're on a social network and you can't find us at Tomb of Ideas, we're, we're probably not on there. <laughs> and of course, you can find our entire back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X, where you'll find all of our episodes along with other great shows like Cinema Smorgasbord, The Shame List, the flagship Cinepunks podcast, Carnage Report, and a whole lot more. And you know, we're not at, on Tinder at Tomb of Ideas, but based on the conversation this episode, we probably should be. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. And before I forget, we have an upcoming guest appearance on another podcast coming up. Oh, yeah. Although they might regret that after listening to this episode. <laughs> uh, no we are, Yeah, no takes back. The author's recorded already. We are appearing on <laughs> Gray Malkin Lane. That, of course, is Chad Anderson's amazing X-Men podcast that he was nice enough to join. You may remember Chad Anderson. He's nice enough to join us on the first episode of our Inferno crossover. He returned the favor by having us appear on his show where we talk about some X-Men the Hidden Years. years, Along with comic book and Stephen Colbert writer Daniel Kibblesmith. That's right. Nice. And that episode should be dropping about a week after this episode drops. So if you're listening to this as it comes out, you should be able to check out the latest episode of Grey Malkin Lane next week, and it will be there. Don't worry, Trey. I'm pretty sure the only people who listen to our episodes are people who are preparing to guess on our show, so it's, uh-huh. it's, it, 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 it works out. <laughs> the, the episode of Grey Malkin Lane drops August 21st. Yep. Anyway, 
Tomb Believers. I have some custom Speedos to go order. So. <laughs> but if you want some homework before oh. next episode... Okay, fine. The things to read before next time are New Mutants, number 73, Excalibur, numbers 6 and 7, Daredevil, number 265, and X-Factor, number 37. That's right, Tomb Believers. So can I go order my custom Speedos now, Trey? You must. Excellent. What size do you wear and can I use your credit card? <laughs> I did not agree to financially support this endeavor. No taggy backsies. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. <laughs> nah, goodbye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb of Ex Excelsior! Ha 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 ha!